You're tuned in to RX Radio. Movement prescribed. Brought to you by Prescript.com. A personalized approach to keeping you healthy and making your best even better. Your hosts, Dr. Jordan Shallow and Dr. Jordan Jinta. What's up, guys? Oh. I know. Welcome oh, back. We're back. RX Radio. Dude, this yeah. month, November, good program. It's a big month. Crushing it. Yeah. Make sure you guys head over to the website, www.pre-script.com. Um, sign up for our free sample of our hip program. If you guys have any hip, knee, ankle issues. Low back. Even low low back, back. All of it, yeah. I've got a lot of people, and it's only been up for... It's only been up for a handful of days. Yeah. Since the beginning of the month, it's been up. Uh, we spoke about it on Monday's on Monday's episode. Um, and we've got a lot of feedback already. And a lot of people, maybe even the most profound stuff I've seen with the HIP program. And again, it's just two weeks. And we have like our, it's a two-week sample of our four and six-week programs that we have. Right. A lot of people with low back pain. Yeah. Which, proof of concept, right? When we're in the office. And this is how a lot of this started was like, how do we scale what we tell people in our office? online right like how if you can't if you don't live in santa clara if you don't live in mountain view how do you gonna how are you gonna get the same kind of intervention that you're gonna get when you're office and this is kind of the the impetus if i use that word correctly of what started prescript wait is that what that impetus. means impetus impetus <laughs> sounded out enunciate um no so it, yeah it's been really cool to see like the results that people have been getting just off two weeks yeah um so it's gonna be two uh training session days and two recovery days, mm-hmm. basically on your training session days when you go in, hopefully you're training lower body twice a week. If you're not, maybe allow this to be your impetus to start doing so. I'm just going to use this word. I'm going to try oh. and use it throughout the day. I'm going to use it very long. You're going to get slapped in the face or something <laughs> at the Chipotle. You know, just Chipotle needs a drive through window. I was just thinking about that. Oh, um, no, but so you integrate with your... Whatever your main movement of the day is, which right. for most people's programming should be first your first movement. exercise. Yeah. So if you're squatting, you go through the movements on week one, active day one, go through all of them, follow along on the app. The app has really helped, um, you know, with the video instructions, really helped kind of uh, uh, speed up that learning curve a bit, what yeah. to do, what not to do, but not overdrawn. Because I, I think... A lot of I see a lot of imitators coming out, oh, a lot man. coming out of the woodwork. And oh, it's like, man. hey, you know what? I don't want to say what they are. they are not. I just want to say what we are. And so it's a nice, concise video. Goes over each movement, how to do it, designated reps, sets. You integrate it three to five times in with your ascending warm up sets of your squat or your deadlift or your lunges or whatever it is you're doing. Um, and yeah, man, even within, I mean, no one's even gone through two weeks yet, and we've seen some pretty cool results. So head on over to www.pre-script.com. Uh, link will be in the show notes um, and just follow us on social media at pre underscore ah, script. Yep. Can't Instagram. do a dash. On can't Instagram. do a dash. Someone has, you can't do a dash on Instagram? I don't think you can do a dash. It's oh, all, I thought someone just had it. Oh, really? I don't know. Well, fuck that guy. I, 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 yeah, I guess. They're, they're holding out on us. They want us <laughs> to buy the, the handle. Um, but yeah, so go check that out. Um, entirely free. You just go on, go on to the website. Window things should pop up and uh, we'll get you set up on the app free of charge and then hopefully you'll have some cool testimonials for us to talk about next week interview yeah coming up yep dude jordan went rogue without me again 
I just, you know what? I, I'm the Willie Loman of podcasters, man. I'm just a fucking traveling salesman. There's the death of this fucking traveling salesman. I, I leave home around and it's just like, all right, my wallet. I got my but keys. The I thing got- is, I think I've seen you fly before and I've seen you come here and, and go to your office before. It looks like you have less luggage when you actually fly. It's and, amazing. And it's places. such a luxury. <laughs> you know, if I could only fly in Adirondack chairs, like if that was an option, like you want premium economy, economy or Adirondack. Every time. Yeah, I'll take splinters in my ass for a thousand. <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Um, but no, so real cool. Uh, um, this interview is with Dr. Michael Ruscio. He's actually local. Awesome. Walnut Creek. It's 45 minutes, 50 minutes away. And, and the cool thing about Ruscio is that it's something that we don't talk about because we don't know fuck all about. <laughs> so it's a really interesting. And I tried to keep it as pointed to like what, I mean, obviously what I want and what I think our audience would like and that's performance. Like, And so to rewind a bit, Ruscio is a, uh, he's a functional medicine doctor who specializes in gut health, but he does it in a way that like he's not he's not crunchy. He's fucking like light years smart. Like the guy is, and across the board, like we we sat around for a weekend, me him and a, and a couple other guys up in Tahoe, and we chatted everything. Like he was like naming off fucking constellations and shit. Like this guy is worldly as as you would. All right. Um, but no, we talked like how gut health is going to affect like performance. We got into supplementation, uh, like what supplements are are going to help. Like where's like. How is gut health going to improve your performance in the gym, improve your recovery, uh, improve cognition? So he definitely was really good at, at keeping it on track as it comes to, okay, here's very tangible information. And he was he was saying things that like, uh, what I liked about it, it kind of flew in the face of like common convention. So we talked about this thing, and this is something that I found really interesting with these things called FODMAPs. FODMAPs are like a specific type of food group that they kind of masquerade as like healthy foods, but they actually can be really bad for like gut bacteria or overgrowing like the bad gut bacteria. So he just went in, man. Like Ruscio, I just kind of, he was like a, he was just like a fucking, he was like Keanu Reeves in the Matrix. Like I was just (laughs) firing all these bullets at him and he was just like, he was able to navigate it really well, but say it in a way that makes sense too, right? Um, And he also has a book out called Healthy Gut, Healthy You. It's on Amazon. I think it's like, I want to say it's like 30 bucks or something. If you're having gut issues, and here's the thing, and the one thing that he highlighted, gut issues don't necessarily manifest at the gut. You know, if you ha- you're having likely any type of, if you're having chronic joint issues, if you're having um, obviously digestion issues, but cognition was another thing you focused on. And the, the neat thing about the book is that it, it is kind of like an algorithm. Like, you know, it's, two people could read the book and have a totally different plan of how they're going to address their particular gut issue from reading the book. So I, great interview. Uh, Ruscio is someone that I've stayed in touch with since we've caught, um, since we've um, recorded this and he's a good dude. So make sure you check him out. He's uh, on Instagram, search Dr. Michael Ruscio, his podcast, um, Dr. Ruscio radio. Uh, so if this is kind of your wheelhouse or you want to learn more outside of the questions I asked them, check it out. Um, but if not, if you're new to the show, five-star rating review if you like it. Obviously, if you don't, keep your mouth shut. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I think I think it's a good one. I think it's something different for listeners to kind of sink their teeth into other than just like me and you yelling about stability and strength all the time. Yep. But yeah, so check it out. Let us know what you guys think. Um, special thanks to Kyle at Lunderjack Productions. And uh, yeah, let us know. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. I'm jealous of the breakfast you got in, man. Yeah, man. Got to come prepared. 
if, if nothing else, I'm, I don't know what I was going to get out of this weekend. Like, I was given very, very little details what this was going to yeah. entail. Same. I had a lot of faith in uh, the crew. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, and they haven't and, and let rightfully me. so. Yeah, they haven't they, let us roast. They straight. haven't let me down yet. How, how did you get connected with them? We actually met uh, through Rob Wolf. When they were down in Reno interviewing Rob Wolf, maybe this was maybe a year and a half, two years ago. I guess they asked Rob, like, who's a guy in gut that we can talk to? Yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, hook up with Rusho. And I'm only about 45 minutes north of them. I'm in Walnut Creek there in San Jose. Yeah. So they said, yeah, come on down and we'll record. And, we, you know, we're all kind of the same type of person. So yeah. we clicked and now we typically cross paths at like Paleo FX and, you know. So you've been to that? Yeah. How is it? It's, I describe it as the spring break of uh, health conferences. Okay. You know, there's a bunch of like young, fit, fun people there. It's fun. The conference is kind of pandemonium because there's just there's so much stuff going on. The vendor floor, it's just chock full of vendors, and there's like six lectures going on at once for like three days in a row. So it's, it's kind of like sensory overload. From, the, from my perspective, it's really fun to meet other speakers. Um, that's been one of the, the coolest things about it is just meeting other, other you know, people there who are presenting. So, it's been it's been good, man. Yeah, and it's it's like a yearly vacation now. Do you have to bite your tongue though? Like, cause I oh, was yeah. just, I was just at the <laughs> like I was just at the Olympia, right? And but I go to it as a clinician, as an academic. I mean, I go as a powerlifter and 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 all that. But when I I can't not look through that lens anymore. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm so removed from like a call it the Paleo FX culture that's kind of surrounded that event. Mm-hmm. But I could only imagine drawing parallels from like, okay, what is what is my experience as a clinician and as someone who takes an academic approach to health and fitness, and what am I actually seeing through the windscreen as I'm walking through the expo? And there's like such a dissonance there that it's disheartening mm-hmm. in that in that arena. But I don't think anyone would say the Mr. Olympia is where you go to get healthy by any stretch of the imagination. How do you appraise the vendors and the products yearly? Because it's such a like if you look at the podcast top 100 ranks keto paleo like that's all you need it seems that's all it needs yeah. to get like a buzzword and if you're a cute girl that helps too but how do you how do you <laughs> appraise it through the lens of like okay how much of this is actually applicable how much of this stuff do people actually need well i have a really hard time going to lectures if, I, if i'm being fully candid um and this is actually something you know i i really kind of grappled with because for a few years i was really jaded i would go to lectures and I would just leave there being like, what the F, yeah. right? Like, this is wrong. That was incorrect. This was misleading. This wasn't fully representative of the data. And then I realized, you know, like, dude, this is my area, right? Like, this is all I do. And I don't know how to say this about something maybe a little bit pretentious. Say it. No, but, do it, man. But That's there, my MO, bro. Right? Like, you're in good company. But, but, but there's there's not a lot of people who know this stuff this stuff, and I'm not saying everything. There are, yeah. are areas where I don't know that much, and I'll, I'm happy to be led to, you know, led to where to go. Um, but in the areas where I do know stuff, you know, there, there's not many people who know the data as well or better. Yeah. And so I found I was more often let down, and I had to I had to reframe my thinking, right? Yeah. Where I'm actually fortunate to have had as long specializing in this area that I have had and to have the clinical experience that I have and have a research team behind me that can help really leverage my time. Yeah. So that's been helpful for me from like a psychological perspective. Yeah. Leaving lectures, 
not being as mad now and just understanding like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've, I've, I'm in this position and I've got to start looking at this more, you know, how can I help out other presenters and try to build the field up rather than kind of, you know. So just kind of look at it, at it like an opportunity, a yeah. hole in the market that's not being serviced. Yeah, or it's like, you know, if you were, I don't know, if you were one of the best jujitsu um, you know, competitors, you'd have to change your perspective of, yeah, you know, I'm going to go against other guys and they're not going to be that good. And, and I could be like, man, JIT sucks. Or I could say, you know what, here's an opportunity for me to help teach other. Yeah. And I'm not trying to hold myself in that high of a light. I don't want to come off the wrong way. Yeah. But that that's at least how I'm trying to make myself feel better about the fact that so many lectures I would go to, I'd be disappointed by. Like a rising tides raise all ships sort of. Yeah. Yeah, outlook. Now, what is outside the lectures when you're on the floor at an event like that? I can only imagine the questions you field, whether it's email inbox, Instagram direct message, (laughs) podcast, whatever, based off just what I see in mine, extrapolating out because I don't find with exercise that people have such an emotional attachment as they have with food. I could argue that maybe nothing. No, you're you're dead on. Yeah. So how do you how do you manage the the fluff and the layers of marketing and over promise under deliver when it comes to some of the new products, some of the novel products in that market, and actual how it pertains to health. Well, that's why one of the things that I've I've really tried to carry into my message is a no fluff, no BS, no spin approach, and you know I I try to get people to think about the fact that there's implicit marketing in information surrounding a healthcare product, right? So here's the here's the information here's the the pathway this thing facilitates or here's why this product can help you but a lot of that is just marketing right it's scientific factoids that are spun to look like marketing and and people don't often understand that the the data that you're reading that's you know this this prebiotic increases short chain fatty acids short chain fatty acids have been shown to be reparative to the intestinal cells and if you have leaky gut, you need to repair your intestinal cells, so take our prebiotic, right? That's a reasonable line of inference, but it's also using information to say what you want it to say, yeah. and it leaves out some other facts. Now, what does it leave out? It leaves out, well, when we take that prebiotic and we apply it in a clinical setting, like in a randomized control trial, do we see an outcome that the consumer would want to have, right? And and so you see prebiotics being marketed as anti-leaky gut or for weight loss. But when you look at the actual outcome data or outcome data, what happens in the clinical trials, you see two, three, maybe four pounds of weight loss, oftentimes in obese populations. So it's not really anything that would be considered clinically meaningful. So I, I try to remind people that it's important to get caught up in the fanfare of the new thing and to take a deep breath and to be measured and discerning and look at what the outcome data shows. Um, and that and that's kind of the approach I try to codify in my book, which is, okay, we're not going to just chase down all these bells and whistles. We're going to look at the breadth of available treatments for your gut. We're going to evaluate the scientific merit of each of these treatments, decide which ones we should include and which ones we should throw off the table. And then we're going to organize what we have left on the table in the most efficient sequence of steps. Um, so I know I, I kind of translated from your question to, you know, um, something else, but that's how I've tried to help people who are inundated with all these health claims bouncing at them, like on a vendor floor. So all, all that's fine and good, and some of those things may have a place. But you know, here here's a here's a resource that can help you navigate that and then apply those in an efficient manner. 
Now, in talking about like marketing practices for these products that sort of gerrymander that that physiological pathway, like talking about short chains and, and, right. and how do you then market yourself as someone like we've similar academic backgrounds to a point and then you kind of split off and maybe we'll get into that a bit later, kind of how you ended up here. Right. But how do you market yourself being someone who's who's a as appreciative of the details, who's appreciative of the buying without overcomplicating things. Sure. And people just want something simple. They just, mm-hmm. like, bro, let me fucking just drink my kombucha, man. Like, right. leave me alone. Why <laughs> you gotta be all up in my grill about it? Right. How do you walk that fine line of, you know, navigating space like a podcast or Instagram where it is instant mm-hmm. gratification, instant information, building a successful brand, writing a successful book sure. without sacrificing integrity? Well, I think... You can make the message simple, right? You know, just because it's scientifically rigorous doesn't mean the take-home has to be complicated. So using the same example of prebiotics, the more symptomatic you are, the more careful you should be with prebiotics. The less symptomatic you are, the less careful you have to be, right? That's really what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. Prebiotics have a tendency to flare people who already have digestive symptoms, so don't use them until end phase, Looking at all these different clinical trials, you can boil it down to that summary. So the summary can be simple. So I think keeping keeping mind of the fact that you've always got to be asking. I'm always putting myself in the in the user position and saying, "What's in it for me?" Right. So I try to never stray too far from what's in it for me. Uh, so we keep the conclusion simple, to the point, actionable, and then also, I really think people are they're hungry for truth. I think people are getting sick of every product's got a compelling story, right? And every couple of months there's a new product and people are, oh, have you heard of this? Like, yeah. You know. yeah. I, but the, the, the point, you know, there, there's, and I think people have gotten burnt out on the promise of the new miracle thing. And I think people are, and this is a quote I, I, I share in my book, which is there's no magic protocol, but there is a magic process, right? So if you're looking for the magic herb or the prebiotic or whatever, you're not going to get there, right? Because it's it's extremely rare that what someone needs to optimize, in this case, their gut health is just one thing, right? Take this one pill. And it's funny that many of us in the progressive, integrative, alternative community criticize that, you know, drug for a, you know, um, ill mentality, but we're doing the same thing in natural medicine. Uh, So what I try to move people towards is let's take a few steps listen to your body, and then use your body's response in this kind of process model. And if we do that, we can figure out how we use all these different products that gets you healthy. And it's, not, it's really not that difficult. What was the, what was the push towards this? Because let's talk maybe a little bit more about like education, how you ended up here. Mm. Because I feel like you've been doing this. You were doing gut before it was cool, man. Like you were, <laughs> you, it's your timeline, like it seems in the last like couple of years, it, it was almost like an aligning of stars with where the market seemed to push, where the research was going, yeah. but you'd been at the table for so long already, likely saying a lot of the same things. But yeah. it, how did you come to find this as a specialty? Well, the, the backstory goes back to when I was in college and I was pre-med. And, you know, I, I wanted to go into conventional medicine. I, I probably would have ended up in orthopedic surgery. That's kind of where I was heading. Um and a lot of that fit for me, right? I, I was type A, overachiever, high GPA, worked really hard. And so a lot of that medical mentality fit with me. Then all of a sudden, I, I go from being 
you know, college athlete playing lacrosse, feeling almost invincible, right? Um, and I mean, the 23-ish, you know. That's who, the most Massachusetts thing I've ever heard, <laughs> is playing. No one even knows what lacrosse is. Ever. Right. <laughs> no, I'm definitely East Coast, born and raised. Um, but then all of a sudden, I started having very bad insomnia, brain fog, fatigue, um, feeling cold for the first time in my life. Um, and there was no no reason, right? I was eating a great diet. I was training. I loved what I was doing. I wasn't overly stressed. So it's not like I was taking poor care of myself and this was a result of that. Everything from a dietary and lifestyle perspective was pretty dialed in. Um, and so I said, okay, this is what doctors are for. You know, you're not feeling well. You go see a doctor and this is what I'm going to do. So this would be a good chance for me to kind of see what this is like. So I went and I saw three doctors, uh, an internist, a GP, and an endocrinologist. They ran some tests and they all said, yeah, you know, you're the picture of health. You got a good muscle mass, good body fat, triglycerides, cholesterol, blood sugar, all look good. Uh, you're really healthy. And of course I'm saying, well, did you hear what I said yeah. about all these symptoms that came out of nowhere? And they said, yeah, you know, we'd love to help you, but there's nothing we're seeing here that we can do anything about. You're probably stressed or, or whatever. You get some of those like, you know, useless platitudes. Um, so I then found the field of functional medicine because I was doing some holistic nutrition training outside of school on my own. And functional medicine was one of the things that floated around in, in, in those spheres. And so it was a little bit different to me. I had to pay a few hundred dollars to see this doctor out of pocket, which was a different experience. And then he told me he thought I had a parasite. And I remember thinking, this guy's going to be nuts, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm like, oh, this is this kooky, you know, weird medical stuff. I had never been out of the country, never had food poisoning, didn't have any digestive symptoms. But at that point, I was kind of desperate. And so I said, well, you know, I'll poop in a cup. <laughs> let's see let's see what comes back. And he was right. And it was only treating that gut infection that allowed me to see a clearing of all these non-gut symptoms, right? Brain fog, fatigue, insomnia, feeling cold. And I really learned that you can have a gut problem that's only manifesting as non-digestive symptoms. Of course, if you have digestive symptoms, that's a dead giveaway, right? But that really opened my eyes and I said, you know, this is really what I want to do. This was really cool. This, this really changed my life in a profound way. Like I, I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't figure that out. Um, and so I changed my path. I went into alternative medicine and there was a lot of great stuff in alternative medicine, a lot of progressiveness, open-mindedness, uh, willing to learn and, and do new things. But then there was also this lack of scientific rigor that I didn't like and people just doling out these extreme recommendations. Everyone should be gluten-free. And, you know, I remember the other one that was always floating around in school was cancer can't survive in a pH environment as if, you know, there's a solution to all cancer, this one thing that everyone's overlooking. And I said, you know, some of this stuff makes sense to me, like optimizing one's gut health and eating cleaner foods. Um, but then some of this just seems a little bit out there. Um, and so I was kind of branded a heretic because I was questioning some of these things. And when you're a student, you don't really have the confidence to fully, you know, uh, criticize these things and stand behind your criticism, but the seed was there. And so then when I got into clinical practice, I started doing things differently than some of my functional medicine cohorts. Like I was doing less testing. Uh, I was more practical. I was more science-based. Um, and then I started kind of criticizing some of the things that I think needed to be updated 
and started collecting some data in our clinic. And, and we've collected data on a couple of different treatments. We're um, in the process of publishing some information on SIBO biofilm treatment. And we have a randomized control trial starting in a SIBO preventative treatment, uh, hopefully in January. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've kind of nestled into this, this niche of Want, you know, trying to be the doctor I'd want to have, right? Someone who's open-minded and progressive and, and will listen and will think about things, not close-minded, but also isn't going to be a fool, right? It's going to double-check and make sure that what we do actually has science behind it and I'm not going to just dole out tons of supplements and tons of dietary restrictions just because I'm really going to try to discern and qualify that all these things are things that need need to be done and can help the individual. And so that's kind of how I got to this niche. Of your patient base now, how much of it is reactive and how much is it is creative and preventative? Like how much is like, oh, I'm riddled with it. And like in a case like you where right. you have the parasite or how much of it is like, I don't want to have problems. I would say it's, it's probably about 80% of people who actively have something going on. Yeah. Um, now there's varying extents, right? For some people, it's a little bit of joint pain and some bloating. For other people, it's I'm on Humira for my inflammatory bowel disease. The next step is surgery. What can we do, right? So there, there's there's a a, um, a range there, um, but and I guess it's natural to conclude that one would only go through the rigors of working with a clinician if they had something that was kind of a pain in the butt driving them. Yeah. When you come across like fads in the industry, what would you say right now is maybe the most pernicious? Like if you had to list three that maybe sell people on a false bill of goods as far as it comes to gut health or, mm -hmm. or just maybe just functional medicine more the whole outside, like the enteric nervous system and the gut. Right. Uh, what would you be your like top three things that not, not like as a hard statement, like don't, you know, don't go gluten-free if you don't have to or fish oil or keto or paleo or carnivore or all the stuff that's coming <laughs> kind of down the pipe of social media. Um, what would you say in your experience are things that you see most often that lead people down maybe a road that they don't think they're going down? Well, th there's a number. I'll, th I'll throw out a couple and then we can expand upon any that you Yeah, need. I'd love to just go rapid fire. Okay. So everyone needing to be gluten-free is a totally untenable statement. Everyone needing to be keto is a, um, a damaging statement. The feeling that you can fix all problems in the gut by feeding Gut bacteria is also an incredibly ill-informed statement. The thinking that adrenal testing is important, I think, is is uh, very easy to tear that down. And also the thinking that thyroid antibodies need to be meticulously tracked and, and any positivity in thyroid antibodies means that there's something wrong with you is also not only damaging psychologically to people, um, but not what the literature seems to support. Um and that you should not use probiotics if you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and that's maybe getting a little more niche. Uh, but those those are a few that that come up. Like keep you up at night, kind of thing. Yeah, Kick they're just they're constant irritants. Yeah. With like <laughs> with practicing in that field, you kind of mentioned like you know pill for the disease kind of thing, and we're just switching out that pill right. for a you know fish oil or whatever. What are the most popular supplements that you have to maybe? wean people off of from a psychological perspective like oh I, I have joint pain i'm taking chondroitin or i'm taking this that and the other thing mm. like the psychological attachment that people have to the attempts that they've made to cure their pathology with going on google and figuring out what the hell's wrong with them mm. what are the supplements that you find that present and not causation or correlation but just right. that present simultaneously or contemporaneously with a lot of symptoms that you see well it leads to another pet peeve which is mthfr polymorphism 
people taking. Have you have you heard of this? No, do expand. Um, so MTHFR is a gene polymorphism, and people with this polymorph polymorphism may have an, an impeded ability to essentially utilize folic acid. So they should instead use folate or methylated folate. Um, and there's some data to support this, but the thinking there has gotten so far ahead of itself. It's, it's just absolutely nuts where these people are coming in now telling me that they have MTHFR as if, you know, they have cancer, right? Like what are your diagnoses? Well, I have Hashimoto's, I have IBS and I have MTHFR. It's like, no, like MTHFR, that's not a thing. And people are internalizing this like it is a life-changing lab finding. And why that's irritating is because if you look at the data reasonably, yes, you can make a, a mild case that people with MTHFR may do better, especially if they have the homozygous mutation where they have two, two of the mutations instead of just one. They may do better on a methylated folate supplement, but there's also data showing no benefit from doing that either. And, and there was one large study in China where they gave people folic acid who had this gene polymorphism, and it's supposed to be really bad if you do that, and I believe it was a 30% reduction in stroke in that population. Um, now, again, there are some hints showing that people may have better absorption and have better outcomes when using the methylated folate. But the thinking that if you have MTHFR, you have to take methylated folate for the rest of your life is just silly. You, you're, you're just not as good at using folic acid. It doesn't mean that if you take folic acid, it's like drinking battery acid. And it also doesn't mean that you need to even do anything about that. Because as Kara Fitzgerald said when she came on my podcast, and I really like this perspective that she shares, it's best to treat methylation upstream, meaning methylation, one of the things that helps do is um, process toxins. And the best way to address these types of things is upstream, meaning clean air, clean food, clean water, and a gut that's working and not causing a bunch of mess for the liver to have to clean up. Um, so that's one supplement that people are on that, like, you know, like they're in um, hormone receptor positive breast cancer, tamoxifen, you know, post, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, surgery and, and radiation therapy, and they they like have to be on this for the rest of their life. It's 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 ridiculous. Um, so that's that's one that's. Do you see a lot of dose dependency thought process? Like that's kind of the, what supplement industries are based on. Like if some is good, more is better. Whether that's being projected or adopted, kind of ignorantly by the consumer. Do you see a lot of that? Like, are people of the of the wherewithal to think, okay, if some is good, maybe? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. P uh, and so one of the things that have people do when they come into our clinic, and it's even something that I recommend in the book protocol also, is come off all of their supplements. Okay. And then we rebuild them from the ground up, starting with diet and lifestyle. And we don't even talk about supplements in the book protocol until the second step. Um, because some people, if they get their diet right, they don't need anything else to fix their gut, right? And we don't want to just reach for supplements right out of the gate. Um, we've published at least one, I want to say two, case studies on our website where the person came in to see a specialist in GI and the only problem was a reaction to a supplement that they were taking. Really? Bile specifically in one case 
causing diarrhea. Supplemental bile can be helpful for some people, but the utility of supplemental enzymes, I think, has been far overreported. Can help, but far overreported. But bile specifically, if too high, can cause something known as bile acid malabsorption or bile acid diarrhea. And so this gal came in, she had previously had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and she was treated, she felt better, and then she regressed symptomatically. And so she thought she was having a regression of her SIBO, so she came into our office. SIBO was not the problem. The problem was she was taking bile, the bile was causing diarrhea, and that one identification was the difference between success and failure. Why that's so important is because if I didn't catch that, we would have done a whole bunch of testing. SIBO wouldn't have come back because her, her SIBO was, was not, the, not the problem. And then we probably would have gone into bucket two of even more esoteric rare testing, right? So this, this poor gal would have gotten pulled down this black hole of treatment and investigation all the while a simple supplement was a problem. Do you, um, do you find that often? Like not, where not often. supplements have like a, almost a, a atrogenic effect? Not often, but... I mean, it's it's not something that I've only seen like two times, okay. right? It happens. I mean, it, it happens where people are over supplementing, and what I think happens is for some people, the supplements are beneficial at first, and then they tip over this threshold where the supplements no longer beneficial. And I think that happens with probiotics sometimes. And I think one of the things people don't understand about probiotics is one of their mechanisms is they're antimicrobial, so they're antibacterial. Ironically, they're antifungal and they're antiparasitic. And, and they're also transient, meaning they don't colonize you. They just kind of have this transient um, uh, you know, life cycle and then they come out the other side. And what I think happens for some people is the probiotics initially help combat overgrowth, so bacteria, fungus, um, and what have you. And that's beneficial to the host. But then after a time, they have too many bacteria in that transient state and they start having problems in and of themselves. So initially, the addition of the probiotics put more bacteria in the system that was fighting fire with fire, killed off the excess bacteria that was there or the excess fungus that was there. So now they're at a net benefit. But as they keep taking the dose, too much bacteria start accruing in that transient pipeline, and now they go into another type of overgrowth. It's just overgrowth of, of the transient bacteria via the probiotic. So Would that be something you suggest waving in or is that protocol different from person to person? Well, it, it, you, you operate under this philosophy of minimal effective dose. Yeah. Right? So, um, and that's, you know, another thing that I talk about in the book protocol is we're going to use all these, th- you know, escalate these therapies and once we have you to your peak level of improvement and you're stable for a few months, then we're going to tailor off the supplements and try to identify what you need and what you don't because some people will notice when they go off a probiotic, they feel worse. So it's okay. We'll find a minimal effective dose, right? And we'll periodically revisit that. And then we'll try to expand your diet, right? So you're always, you're, you're using this kind of pulsing in and then weaning off with the goal of minimal supplements in the long term and broadest diet in the long term. And, and that, that, you know, it, it does make a difference. People should not have this this thinking that they have to be on a supplement to be healthy. You may, right? But you don't want to assume that. You want to really qualify that objectively through your own experiments or now, subjectively, I should say. A lot of people, like even pulling back from supplements, like food choices, like in California. How long have you been in California for? 10 years. It was it just a total fucking culture shock when you moved out here? It's, I mean, it's definitely different, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I cut from the same block, northeast, like Canada, Mass, right. like, 
when I wa- I didn't know what a Whole Foods was until I came out here. Yeah. And I walked in, I was like, what's, what the fuck is a kimchi? You know, I'm, know. Not, I'm not eating that. Why is this cabbage purple? Why is it suspended? Like, I guess the point I'm getting to here is like, even removed from taking like exogenous pre-probiotics, things for gut health. Like, do you find that people are going overboard just with the popularity of this subset of health and fitness now with foods that have, oh, it's good for your gut. But it's like kimchi is like what Korean or Japanese Korean, and then kefir, kefir. How do you say kefir, that? I kefir think, is yeah. like that's like well, that's somewhere in Russia or, or George. Yeah, are we getting too far away from our lineage? Yeah, and yeah. like I'm not one for like you know maybe not ancestral type of eating, but like you could be getting an excess or more than a minimum the minimum effective dose just in your diet alone. Like, how do you do? You ever have to just go into the dietary interventions before? Oh yeah. And, and I think the, the bigger problem is a problem of excessive exclusion where people keep learning about foods that are bad for them and they keep cutting foods out. And the, you know, the, the challenging thing is you can find data to support how gluten is bad, how dairy is bad, how carbs are bad, how fat is bad, how protein is bad, how FODMAPs are bad, how lectins are bad, how saponins are bad, how sulfur is bad, how oxalates are bad, how histamine is bad. And so... The further you pull on the string, you can just descend into this situation where you're almost eating nothing. Yeah. Water. Pla- fasting, man. I'm fasting. Um, yeah, you can end up eating literally nothing. Uh, and why that's problematic is because, yes, there are data to support all these, but it doesn't mean that you have to accrue all these together and follow a diet that strings together nine different philosophies. Yeah. Um, and I think people don't realize that one of the most powerful things we can do is just learn to listen to our own bodies. Take gluten as an example. Some people clearly do better off gluten, but for other people, it poses no problem for them. Now, why is that relevant? Because if that same person is sensitive to vegetable fiber, sulfur, and histamine, they have a shrunken plate because they have to avoid those. So we don't want to lump onto that restriction anything additional that's not truly needed. Not to mention that the data doesn't, doesn't support everyone needing to avoid gluten. And again, I'm, I have almost all my patients start off with a trial gluten-free, but I'm also not dogmatic. I'm not going to swing the other way and say this underweight guy who needs to get carbs in the system and is sensitive to vegetable fiber but does better on grains can't eat any grains. Yeah. It, it, um, so I think, I think that the bigger problem is increased awareness of all these diets, but not a process to try to figure out, well, what do I, as Mary Sue, need to avoid and what can I eat? But rather you get, you know, one guy in gluten, everyone's got to avoid gluten, one guy in lectins, everyone's got to avoid lectins. And then people just go, okay, 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 okay. And they start lumping all these together and then they feel really lost. Do you feel like the guy in each one of those individual camps is doing that out of like self-interest of having a, a flag to fly from promoting a brand? Or is it just purely ignorance and he does actually believe the shit he's spouting? Because <laughs> it's hard to hide behind and market. Well, that depends, right? And, and understanding exclusion criteria and the different processes and how right. these supplements are, are leading you down this path. Like, do you feel like you're, I'm reluctant to even use the word colleagues if someone's that myopic in their viewpoint when it comes <laughs> to dietary interventions. But for lack of a better term, when your colleagues come out and are hard stanced against some of these interventions mm-hmm. or for these interventions, do you feel like that's just ignorance or do you feel like that's market-driven? Well, I think some clinicians don't fully understand how discerning we have to be with the language that we use, mm. right? Uh, and this is something that I'm learning where when I say something, 
people really hang on that, right? And so I'm learning. I, I, I you know, you, you, you have to try to be very careful in the language that you use and not say things like, it's really common, a lot of people, all the time, right? Yeah. Because then people conflate those to mean everyone. Um, so we have to be careful with, with how we paint these um, canvases. So I think that's one thing. People, people don't realize how literally the consumer will hang on their words. The other is I think some of these people um, are, are honestly ignorant. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot more good out there than there is bad, meaning there's a, a lot more of ignorant benevolence than there is malicious malevolence. Yeah. Um, but it's, the end result is still damaging. Um, and then I think there are some people who are, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to sell a book or a position. I think that's more so the minority. Yeah. But there are definitely, unfortunately, some people who I've, I've learned the backstories who are just like a, they're a doctor who spins a good story, but they're actually a salesman for hire. And that I find absolutely abhorrent and it really irritates me. Yeah, and it's the few that are going to make the most noise in that situation, right? Well, so, sometimes because if they're if they're a good salesman, then the companies that are selling products put a bunch of money behind marketing their book, their lecture, their their whatever, um, and sometimes those voices end up being the loudest. But I also want to be careful to say that that's only a small handful. There's yeah. a lot of really good people out there who are doing very good work, and I, you know, I don't mean to be tearing other people down, but I think we need to start talking about this in the field because unless we do, it's, it's never going to get better. Well, I think that's because you stand as a moderator between the general public and the far extremes of the subset of medicine that you practice in, right? And unless you're willing to have that conversation as someone who's a little bit more centered in your approach, right. then you run the risk of being suitcased in with buddy on the far left. And I think sure. that's true of whatever, whether it's medicine, whether it's religion, whether right. it's politics. Like if you're moderate, you don't need to look left to explain their position you need to look right and be like hey guys get your shit together otherwise we're all in this together and you're going to sink this fucking thing you know what i mean yeah and and so with with functional medicine it's an excellent point you know following some of these um guidelines that i'm laying out only helps the field right if we're less dogmatic if we're less overzealous if we're less expensive that allows the field to reach and help more people so there's no real downside to any of this, right? Everyone benefits. So I think it's just, you know, having to learn, and, and I, I think actually that's very literal, the field has to learn and grow just like a, a cell phone was cumbersome and expensive 10 years ago, and now they're small, they're still expensive, I guess, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but they do a lot more for the, for the sure. cost. I think that's where the field is going. And some of this is just that growing pain of excising out the inefficient points. The nice thing with kind of we'll call them alternative fields which are hopefully pushing to more mainstream is that it's free market decision right mm -hmm. like a lot of times i don't deal with insurance in my practice right. so when that model across the board pushes to free market free market will work itself out a lot faster like conventional medicine still has stuff in practice that's so archaic and antiquated and not up with yeah. the research because they're not beholden to the the strictures of the free market yep and I think I think right now it's it's really interesting that you say that because I think what we're seeing right now is a free market correction where a subset of the functional medicine field has been very much you know ensconced in this party line of if we're not assessing we're guessing and if you're sick we can run the tests that will tell us what's wrong with you and give us the data and that all sounded really good until people started realizing that that comes with a five thousand dollar lab bill attached 
And now that there's a different school of thought that I like to think that I'm a part of and, and hopefully, you know, one of the main people pushing it forward of a more conservative cost-effective model, it's cool to see clinicians who, for example, there, there's one clinician, I'll give him a shout out, Joe Mather, who, who reads our clinical training newsletter and he's um, new into practice. I think he's two years in um, as a practicing MD. And he said, I'm using your cost-effective model as a marketing point where I'll be less expensive than the other functional medicine guy down the street. Yeah. And so I think the free market is starting to make that correction now. I think as, as it should because once in the States anyways, and I say in the States, Canadian healthcare system is a little bit different and maybe a little bit more antiquated because of the lack of free market influence into the healthcare decisions because yeah. everything's kind of covered. I just think that model long term is just going to be more sustainable. Like the diagnosis by exclusion model, mm -hmm. I think it just fall and it, it forces people to have skin in the game. Yeah. Like if the, if their involvement as a patient is of a reciprocal role to the physician rather than just going in here, all I have to do is take this. Okay, see you later. I want to switch gears now to kind of more sports performance and how that stuff plays in. You talk a lot about like markers and things you'd look for. What are the biggest things that you'd see in someone who's like? I mean, I come from a powerlifting background. You played lacrosse, more in the field of like strength-based sports or anaerobic sports. What do you see most efficient in people who kind of pursue, are, are kind of on the fringe of maybe lifting weights is healthy to a certain point, but now we're going past that. It's like a, we're lifting weights at an extreme level. What do you see as like inflammatory markers or problems that relate to the gut mm. that can improve performance? Well, I mean, one of the simplest things that you'll see oftentimes when people overreach for, for too long and, and kind of burn out, well, is one, just a pattern of that burnout, right, where the performance starts plummeting. But, uh, and I should maybe clarify that what you'll see there oftentimes is they won't sleep as well. They wake up an hour after falling asleep and they wake up two hours later and they wake up an hour before or 30 minutes before their alarm clock goes off and they can't fall back to sleep. All those are, if those are happening consistently, those can be signs of overreaching or overtraining as can lack of pop or spark in your workout and fatigue, joint pain, uh, chronic muscle pulls or, or twangs. Um, but you may also see someone start to have a digestive regression. And that, those are a lot of people that I end up seeing where they're pushing really hard for a while and now all of a sudden they're bloated, they're constipated, they have diarrhea. One of the things that doesn't necessarily help this is some of the pre and post-workout powders are loaded with a bunch of garbage. And what would be the most pernicious? Because I, I think like as a take home, I want everyone to check the bottles and be like, okay, this ingredient could potentially be why I'm not performing because mm -hmm. they take it with a dose dependent thought of this is why or how I do perform. Well, you know, sometimes it's the things that you can't actually see. Okay. Uh, known as excipients, which help. And I didn't really appreciate this until I had Anthony Gustin on the podcast and um, he has two companies, Perfect Keto and Equip Foods. And he explained to me how when he was making some of his supplements, it's supposed to be like a you know a twenty gram bag right of whatever powder, yeah. and he gets the initial sample back and it's twenty one point two five grams. And he goes, well, why is there more in here? And the manufacturer says, well, oh, we add these excipients so the machines will run faster. And Anthony said, well, this is magnesium stearate and you know, a few other you know agents, uh, powdering agents, and and um, kind of like powder lubes, I guess you could describe them as. And Anthony said, well, you know, I don't, I don't want these in the supplement. We're trying to have a really clean line. And he had to pay an additional fee because the machines run slower if they don't put the excipients in there. 
So, so for some people, it's not about it's about just finding a clean line yeah. where there's not going to be as many fillers and excipients in there. Um, so, I mean that I mean that would be probably one of the one of the biggest things is just a clean line. And then it may not necessarily be that there's something that you have to look at or look for in your supplement, but it may be that if you're pushing, 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 your gut starts to get a little bit broken down and for lack of a better term, leaky and damaged. And then you're more sensitive to everything. So for some people, they, you know, yes, look to make sure you have a clean supplement, but then also it may be that you're now becoming somewhat hyperreactive. And you may notice more foods are bothering you, more supplements are bothering you. And it may not be that you have to change all the foods and change all the supplements, but you may need to scale back your training volume and then employ some strategies that can help to heal your gut. I kind of want to go rapid fire with like staying on the vein of supplements. Like a lot of people that listen to our podcast are CrossFitters, Olympic weightlifters, uh, strongman, powerlifters, things like that. And people that look to maximize performance, they look to maximize sleep, they look to maximize recovery. And the recovery market, whether we were talking downstairs, Normatec, Cryo, all this stuff. Right, right. But I think I would think the the supplement market still rules the roost as far as the bringing in the most money in the recovery market. I want to kind of throw out, and maybe you could like parameterize or or stratify the actual significance relative to you know in this study it shows two percent increase or whatever a decrease in this. And then how that actually has a physiological effect on someone. So as a as a chiropractor, I get a lot. Oh, like my knee hurts. I'm gonna have uh, turmeric, for example. Like I just want rapid fire. First thing that comes to mind, whether it's overdrawn, under, like it's it's not effective. It's too. Okay. With, with one caveat that yeah, I, I can't say I know all this literature. So sure. I'm, I'm getting a little bit outside of yeah. my area of specialty, but I'll certainly give you my yeah best no opinion. and, and uh, that disclaimer speaks value to the opinions that you do have because they're not going to be bullshit. Right. <laughs> turmeric. Yeah, I think there's some good evidence for turmeric. Okay. Um, magnesium. Yes, but you have to be careful with the form. Some forms of magnesium are more laxating than others. So you're talking like magnesium, citrate, sulfate, Yeah, magnesium glycinate. oxide will be the most laxating. Okay. So you may want to try citrate, theanate, glycinate okay. if you're having a problem with loose bowels. Ashwagandha. Yeah, there's some decent evidence for ashwagandha. Okay. Casein protein. Well, the only concern I ha would have there is some people are casein sensitive. Okay. So just make sure I would just do a test on it yeah. and, and bring it in, do it for a few days. If you notice any kind of symptomatic regression that correlates, even if it's something like poor sleep, stop for a few days, see if that symptomatic reg regression clears, and then go back on it and see if that symptomatic regression returns. Creatine. Yeah, I think there's... Um, and, and Mike Nelson's been on my podcast and talked about that fairly lengthly. I think that's probably one of the most well-studied and impactful, both for performance and for uh, neural performance. But I think you need to have like 10 grams a day to get the neural cognitive benefits from yeah. it. It's pretty high dose. Uh, fish oil. Yeah, I think um, if someone's not eating much fish, then I think you can make a case for fish oil. And actually, one of the things that was interesting in, in looking at a worldwide assessment of hunter-gatherer macronutrient intakes was... The farther you go from the equator, the lower the carb and the higher the fat the diet becomes indigenously because of what's available locally for procurement. But the main uh, method for which the fat intake increased in the diet was through fish intake. So I think some people are doing way too much beef potentially and not enough fish. And so if you're not getting any fish oil in, I'm sorry, if you're not getting any fish in, a fish oil makes more sense. But if you're getting 
at least three servings of fish in per week, hopefully a little bit more, then there's less of a case. Because remember, if you have a, a balance intake of three and six, then the need to supplement with the three diminishes. It's just, you know, trying to offset that balance. And one of the reasons why I think the fish oils have been shown to be so beneficial or have been shown to be beneficial is because so much of the population is deficient, okay. right? But if you have a balanced diet, then there's less of a need for it. Now, in more like sports performance-based caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can goose performance to some extent with caffeine, as I understand it. But then there's the other side of that coin, which is people may have problems with sleep and eventually burn out. So you have to be careful with not overstimulating. Beta alanine? I believe it's a, only a small, I think, 2 to 3% performance increase with beta alanine okay. from one of the systematic reviews that I read. So it's something, yeah. right? But, I mean, if you still haven't gotten your fundamental pillars in place, like sleep, recovery, macros, I would say optimize those before beta alanine. If all optimized, what, I mean, it doesn't have to be of the list that I just kind of rattled off the top of my head. What would be for sports performance? Let's, let's, let's stick with an energy system. Let's go strength. So I can use this and go right to the store after this. I got a pen and a pad out. What would be like your go-to, like if you if you had to lift something heavy and the rest is all taken care of, what are the supplements? What are the rocks that most people don't look under to try and yield athletic performance? Mm. Well, again, I, I don't know that I, I have the fullest purview of the literature here, sure. but I would say from what I do understand, creatine and caffeine would probably be the two best. Okay. All right. So that'd be the go-to. Yeah, so sorry, nothing super sexy or... Damn it, oh, I wanted that one answer, man. Uh, now, you mentioned the book. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Um, when, when was it released? What can people, where can people find it? Where, like, what's kind of the content of it? Yeah, and we should also talk about low FODMAP diets. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. Um, and, and we talk about that in the book. So the book is called Healthy Gut, Healthy You. It's available on Amazon. And essentially, I wrote this book to try to give someone the same experience they would get if they worked with me as a patient in the clinic where, I mean, this book will get you there. There is a ton in the protocol in the book. So it's not just cut out gluten, take a probiotic, eat fermented foods, and, and you're done, right? I mean, we have different protocols, different steps. We check in with your symptoms at the end of every step. And depending on how you're doing, you go one way or the other. So it's a very adaptable protocol. It's also not overwhelming because you only go through more steps if you haven't been fully healed, right? So as soon as you're done, you're done. Yeah. Now, there are eight steps, but a really healthy person may only go through one, right? But someone who's trying to perform but also staving off inflammatory bowel disease surgery, they may need to go through all eight, right? So I don't want to overwhelm people. It's, it, everything's in very simple language. It's very simple to execute, and it's very adaptable. And we essentially go through the whole philosophy of your gut, how it connects all these different systems of your body, how important it is, why it's important. And then we get right into reviewing all the literature. So different diets, yes or no. Fiber intake, do you need to have a high fiber intake or will you be at risk if you have a lower fiber intake? Because some people actually do better on a lower fiber intake. Um, answer there is you don't have to be in a fiber intake to have a healthy colon. So we can go through the book and two people with two separate starting points can actually navigate two totally different paths. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So it's logarithmic in the sense of, you know, it's not like you're riding the bus. Not like everyone's ending up in the same spot. Right. Because yeah. the thing is, you know, no two people are going to like the destination if it's only one destination, yeah. right? If you're trying to go to downtown Harlem, some people are trying to get there and some people are scared shitless being there, yeah. right? Uh, so you, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, something that is is very algorithmic 
Um, and and uh, the point I was driving a moment ago, we, we outline the evidence in a very simple, clear-cut way on all these different therapies. And then we say, here's how we put those to use. Step one, diet and lifestyle. And there's a couple different ways you can go with diet, one of which is a low FODMAP diet. Yeah, because that was something that when I was listening to your podcast the other day that struck me as something I've never even heard the word before. I, mm. I can know something and know, enough to know that like I'm ignorant to that topic, but to be blindsided with something that it, as I've never heard before, it was like seeing a color I've never seen before. <laughs> what the hell is that? And then in, in talking to you before, because I think that relates back to the book really well where a lot of people... low. <laughs> Dietary books, in my experience and what I've seen, very minimal of it's low-hanging fruit, right? Like it's a, oh, yeah. no, it's a novelty stimulus rather Absolutely. than a specific stimulus. Absolutely. And that's something that, that I preach in my office all the time when it comes to corrective exercise. It's like if you're not doing anything, something will be better. But so, you want to be specific because that's something not – it doesn't necessarily going to be better. Mm-hmm. And then when I, I listened to you talk about FODMAPs, I was like this is, this is a emblematic – situation of where specificity matters because if i said healthy diet a lot of the foods you were listing well that would fall under healthy diet but it could actually be problematic so kind of give people a rundown of like what fodmap foods are why you should avoid them yeah and you're, you're exactly right you know this this book is not like i said it's not um avoid gluten take probiotics right it's 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 a it's a deep protocol uh, and fodmaps is one of those tweaks and especially for your audience with a lot of athletes one of the things that, that may happen is if someone's pushing too hard, one of the first food groups they may become more sensitive to, a little bit speculatively here, is FODMAPs, which is why you're seeing some literature now show less gastrointestinal upset in athletes when employing a low FODMAP diet. And foods that constitute FODMAP. Are ironically healthy looking. Yeah, right? um, looking. Uh, asparagus. Broccoli, cauliflower, avocado, apples, right? So these are all foods, and it's not to say they're unhealthy, right? It's just knowing, okay, if if you've just tweaked your knee, heavy deadlift, heavy squat may not be the best thing for you right now, right? So it's not to say that it's a bad exercise all the time for everyone, but at this point in time, until we rebalance and heal the knee, we may want to be careful with that lift or a heavy version of that lift or whatever. I love the translation to the, to the meathead population. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, what would be a case, like, so you outlined knee avoid squats at this time. What's the exclusion criteria for someone who might be experiencing symptoms because they're squatting on a heavy knee? Right. So th- this is one of the challenging pieces, which is there's not a specific litany or, or, or constellation of symptoms that would say you should do the low FODMAP diet. But they can, of course, include constipation, diarrhea, bloating, abdominal pain, reflux, some of your classical digestive symptoms. But there's also studies showing a low FODMAP diet improves fatigue scores in those with fibromyalgia and decreases pain scores. Um, some evidence shows that people with rheumatoid arthritis may improve from going on a low FODMAP diet. Uh, I see brain fog and sleep sometimes improve when going on a, a low FODMAP diet. So coming back to the algorithm, I would start with a paleo-like diet, right? So avoid processed foods, focus on meats, fats, uh, vegetables, fruits, nuts, and seeds, and, and that kind of just general whole food approach. And you give that a couple of weeks, and if that's not working, then you can employ a low FODMAP diet. And the good news about a low FODMAP diet trial 
is you only need two to three weeks to adjudicate if that's helping you. And if it is, great. You know, if, if you're clearly able to say, yes, I'm improving after two to three weeks, that means it's the right diet for you at this point in time, and then continue with it until you plateau, right? And usually what happens here is in case one, that's enough to lead to a full resolution, perfect, we're done, right? Really? And, then, and that's your milder case, but in case two, you'll see a 30, 40, 50% improvement, and you're happy with that, but you're not totally healed. And that's when in the book, we then go to step two. And so at the end of step one, we say, you know, how are you feeling? If you're not at least 70% improved, then move on to step two. So step two, we then start adding in things like probiotics, right? So one of the mistakes people make is they read all these different things on the internet and they try them haphazardly. They don't have a, a process. Now, if you try a good treatment at the wrong time, you're going to have a bad outcome, right? So what we do is, or what I do in the book is, we, we escalate you through these therapies so that you're applying them in the most efficient sequence of steps. So first is, is diet, and then after that, something that we may consider that could leverage the impact of a low FODMAP diet could be a, a good probiotic protocol. It's almost like bad drug interactions. It's almost like how a, ph- like a pharmacist would look at two opposing drug interactions. Right. You want to make, yeah, you want to make sure you're using these things synergistically and not in a way that's antithetical to one another. And the physiological effect of the FODMAP mm, in yeah, the so lining of the that. gut. Yeah, yeah. That's more my personal interest. Yeah. Because so, I want all the reasons to talk about <laughs> my vegetables. Hear this, mom. <laughs> um, so one of the things that likely happens, especially in athletes when they're overtraining, is there's too high of a stimulus of immunosuppression because exercise is immunosuppressive, right? And some of that stimulus is good. It's, it's hormetic, right? We, want, we don't want to be overly immune stimulated right? because then we're overly inflamed. Mm. If we have some exercise, that's a healthy stressor. That's a little bit immunosuppressive. And this is probably why we see when sedentary people start exercising, the diversity, the health of their microbiotas improves, right? Because now you're a healthier host. You have that little bit of exercise-induced immunosuppression. That's good. It prevents your gut immune system from being overzealous and killing everything in sight. And it kind of throttles back your gut army to be where it should be. However, you keep continuing on that spectrum even farther, and now you get into a net immunosuppressive effect that's, that's detrimental, right? You're, you're too immunosuppressed. And what may start happening is you see some populations of bacteria or perhaps even fungus overgrow. And that's not a huge reach. We know that triathletes, for example, have a higher incidence of upper respiratory tract infections, right? So we know this happens in a pulmonary um, area. And I think it's fairly safe to infer that this also occurs in the gut. So when you eat a low FODMAP diet, the low FODMAP diet is low in prebiotics because a high FODMAP food is high in prebiotics prebiotics feed bacteria. A low FODMAP food is low in prebiotics, starve bacteria. So now the immunosuppression from too much exercise leads to an overgrowth of bacteria. You go on a low FODMAP diet, you starve out those bacteria and you get your colony back to balance. Is this something you would almost, you could wave in predictively with training cycles? Like if you're going to go into like a high sympathetic drive training block, because like everything you're, everything you're saying sounds to me that the precursor is from the nervous system. Well, it's not. It's not just that. I, I am kind of coloring this in in the guise of athletic speak. Yeah. Um, stress could also do potentially the same thing. So if someone's overly stressed, 
So their exercise load may be okay, but they may not be sleeping enough and just getting up too early in the morning to do a normal exercise load. Okay. And they're also, you know, a mother and working on their PhD. <laughs> they're, they're just, you know, they're, they're too stimulated. Um, and some of this could be from if someone's been using acid-lowering medication, that increases the risk of the imbalance that may lead someone to do better on a low FODMAP diet. And potentially prior antibiotic use may also open up that door. So lower or, and prior antibiotic use would actually be indicated for a FODMAP decreased diet. Potentially. There, there's a, a small amount of evidence that infers that. And I think, I think what may happen more so here is it may not be the antibiotics because you, other antibiotics are used to treat bacterial overgrowth in the gut quite successfully, like rifaximin. I think what may happen is the antibiotic may lead to an imbalance in the colonies of bacteria. And so it's, it's more technically, I should state that it's not necessarily a total overgrowth, but you have some players overgrown that you don't want overgrown, and now there's an imbalance in the community. So it's a relative. It's a relative. It's yeah. like an it's dis- dysbiosis. Yeah. Thing. Okay. Yeah. Now, if you were to, do you find yourself recommending a lower FODMAP diet, say more frequently than something like a like a gluten intolerance or, or a gluten limiting diet or a ketogenic or a paleo diet? Because based well, off the, like based off the potential benefits of that for a lot of people, and the just the lack of at least attention as it crosses my screen every day, but the benefits that you're saying is like, well, I would rather almost try that first before I try gluten free or try that. Like, what's the prevalence of this being beneficial to people? That's a great question. What's what's more prevalent, gluten sensitivity or FODMAP sensitivity? Yeah. And that I mean that's that's a question of of a fair degree of contention at the moment because there have been a number of studies showing benefit from a low FODMAP diet and one, maybe two of those have shown they, they controlled for gluten versus FODMAPs and they actually found that people, when they had symptoms upon reintroduction of X, the symptoms were actually attributable to the FODMAP content and not the gluten. Interesting. But there's also a number of studies showing that gluten can be a problem. So it's not to say it's all one or all the other. There can be some overlap. What I think can happen for some people, and this isn't answering your question, but I think it's relevant. Um, some people who think they're gluten sensitive are actually FODMAP sensitive. And if they got their gut in better shape, they'd be able to have some gluten without the reactions. Now, is there a reverse effect? If, like if you avoid, like I've been told this anecdotally, my sister is celiac. I don't even know how to say it. Yeah, see that. See that? Okay. So she ate it for the longest time growing up, had a bunch of bowel issues, runs in the family. Now she just cut it out. She had all the tests. She's good. The hypersensitivity, is that is that true? Like when people who are either they are pathological in the sense that they to can't To gluten process. itself, you mean, or just yeah. everything? Yeah, so no, to gluten itself, but then I want to draw a parallel to FODMAP food. So like if you arbitrarily take out gluten and you, you're not celiac, will you then increase your sensitivity to being able to, or you decrease your ability to process uh, gluten when, when sort of posed with it again? No, you, you really shouldn't in any significant fashion. You may notice when you bring back in any kind of prebiotic rich food, you may have a couple days of turbulence as certain enzymes and bacterial populations are upregulated and help you digest it. But yeah. that would only be a transient adjustment period. But this is, this is, I think very important. For some people who have either celiac or 
drawing a little bit of an inference here, non-celiac gluten sensitivity who go gluten-free, see some improvement but not complete improvement, they may also have another problem in the gut that's leading to that lack of responsiveness. And you see a number of trials that have been published showing it's, it's known as recalcitrant celiac where people who are celiac go gluten-free but they don't fully respond. And one study found, I believe of 13 patients, one patient had a FODMAP sensitivity, two patients had, I think, worm infections, and then 10 had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And when they were treated for their respective imbalances, either a low FODMAP diet or antibacterial treatments, they saw complete resolution. So for some people who go gluten-free and partially respond but not fully respond, they may need to employ other therapies. And it may not be that they have to gluten, you know, gluten-free diet harder. Yeah. If you're celiac, yeah, you want to be diligent, right? But there are some people who are just a little bit sensitive to gluten and they cut it out, they feel better but not fully improved. And then they go down this rabbit hole of, well, you know, whenever I go out to dinner now, I'm not going to have anything with sauce. I'm never going to have any. And they, they get too restrictive and their life becomes dauntingly difficult. And we may be able to salvage those cases where they can actually you know, partake and enjoy some of these foods if they clean up another imbalance in the gut that's leading it's, to those symptoms. The, the waiter put gluten in my food. I know it. They didn't clean the plate properly. There was gluten on that plate. The right. sensitivity. And so, is, yeah, sometimes it's blamed for everything. Yeah. And maybe the case in some situations, but we also want to make sure you're not missing low-hanging fruit, like a, a, a good probiotic protocol, a trial on a low-fab-map diet, or even an antimicrobial protocol, make it to do a point where you never have those sensitivities anymore. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, extrapolating from a low power, but SIBO would seem to be a, a based off that, 10 to 1 to 2 in the 13th clinical trial, like look to the, right. like the low-hanging fruit, the common things present. Commonly. Exactly, and, and all those kind of share this, uh, a lot of overlap, right? A low FODMAP diet can help with SIBO. At least, at least, it, you know, anecdotally, that seems to be the case. And theoretically, it seems to be a pretty sound posit. Now, the problem is you only exist in one place. You're right. in. You're that's in, why I wrote the book. You're in Walnut Creek. Yeah. Obviously, the book. Follow it if you're having gut issues, or if you more probably if you're having issues. Period. Right? Because we talked about most most of these things manifesting himself in other places with yeah. sleep or brain fog. It's it's a, it's a good thing to do. Um, if you've improved your diet and you've improved your lifestyle and you're still not feeling well, I would say then take steps to optimize your gut health yeah. and then reevaluate. And the best thing I can offer someone to optimize their gut health is the book. And you know, I, I want to be clear in stating, and we're even recording some testimonials with readers who have literally read like five diet books and been to a functional medicine doctor and weren't helped and then read our book and feel fine now. How would you set out exclusion criteria for someone who's looking to go locally to and find a functional medicine practitioner? What are what are um, some dead giveaways of people who you know maybe dogmatic? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I talk about this in the book actually. Also, I, okay, I just buy the fucking book. I, then, I, I lay, yeah. Well, I, I just want to make sure that you know, in case you miss it, people miss it here. There, yeah, there's yeah, a further for sure. further elaboration. Um, so, people who seem hard driving, right? Who you've got to be gluten-free, right? And let's say you go in, let's say you have hypothyroidism and you're talking to this doctor doctor in an initial consult and they go, oh, you have Hashimoto's, you have hypothyroid, you should never have any gluten. Careful, right? Careful of those strong, everyone's got to be low carb, everyone needs to be gluten-free. Careful of strong language because I, I truly believe that dogmatism can only exist in the presence of ignorance. And I mean dogmatism as it portrays in this hard-headed, yeah. you know, stern mentality. Um, I would also be cautious of people who have these elaborate 
kind of sales processes where you do a console and then, uh, you know, it's a whole package. Uh, now, I, I should be careful because uh, a few of my cohorts in nutrition said, well, you know, as nutritionists, we oftentimes do nutritional coaching packages. Okay. All right. I'm not saying this is a universal rule, but uh, I think more so for, for doctors, if they're going to bundle in all your visits, all your treatment, all your labs into one package, that more often means it's someone who's looking at this as a business first rather than a clinical offering first. And business is part of it. I get that, right? But I've more often found that that's, that's a, it's a realm you don't want to enter into. Um, let's see. I would also look for someone and I may get a little bit of flack for this, but there are some, I think you have a, if you can find someone who both publishes research and is in the clinic, that, you know, those are more rare, um, but you then tend to see a better balance of someone who knows academics, but also knows clinical. I would also say, be a little bit cautious if someone only has a telephone consulting practice, and I, so I want to say that a little bit cautiously, but I found clinicians who actually have a physical office have a little bit more invested. Yeah, skin in the game. And, and again, you know, that's not a universal rule. There are some great clinicians I know who exclusively go over the phone. I'm just trying to give some blanket statements, and I, at, at the you know at the potential risk of offending people, I just want to make sure to throw that qualifier out there. Um, so yeah, I think I think those are some of the the biggest. Oh, and then one other one. And 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 well, this is this is kind of a, a spectrum, but it's good to know what type of provider you may need, right? If you're someone with a really advanced case, you probably want to work with a doctor. If you're someone who's just starting, a health coach may be adequate. Health coach is going to be less expensive, so it's a good place to start. Doctors going to be more expensive, so you don't want to start there unless you necessarily need to. Um, and I'd recommend people go through the book protocol, and then if you're still not where you want to be, bring that information to a doctor. But the reason why I harp on this is because you know, it's one of my quarrels with functional medicine, which is the expense, right? So there are, I would say the vast majority of people, and especially probably from your audience, because it's, I don't, I'm assuming you don't have a lot of, you know, chronic gut cases in, in your no, audience. No, I don't come across those too often. Um, so for the, for the majority of people, they'll be able to execute the book protocol and not need, for, for the cost of probably two doctor's office visits, never mind if they do lab testing. Yeah. So the, the cost-effective piece, I think, is really going to shine there. And then if, if you don't see the full results, you can bring what you've learned to the clinician you work with, and then you'll give them a lot of ammo to get the ball rolling right out of the gate. So aside from the book, you got some speaking engagements coming up? I'll be at the Integrative Healthcare Symposium in New York, which I believe is February 22nd to 24th. Okay, I believe that's predominantly for clinicians. Um, and I mean, I, I, I usually have like six per year. I'll be at Paleo FX okay. most, most likely, um, a SIBO symposium most likely. Uh, so I don't have my full calendar pinned down for the next year at the moment. Where can they find you online to find you in person and social media and all that job? DrRusha.com is the website, drrusco.com. You can plug into the book there. The book is Healthy Gut, Healthy You. It's also available on Amazon. We have a weekly podcast, video, and article. Uh, social media, I'm at Dr. Ruscio, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O, on Instagram. I'm not sure if that's the same way you do a Twitter handle. Or I think so. It should be similar enough where you can yeah. find me. Uh, Facebook, same same thing. Uh, it's facebook.com slash Dr. Ruscio. Um, 
And yeah, I mean that's the lion's share. In, in practice, Walnut Creek. In, in practice, yeah, sorry. we a lot of in, Bay Area. In, in practice, in Walnut Creek, there I should just address this. There, there is I think about a six to mo- eight month wait to be seen as a patient. But I, I would say to someone, don't let that dissuade you because once you're in, it's only a couple weeks to be seen yeah. as a follow up. Um, and if you're really in need of help, I would say make an appointment now. Go to work on the book protocol, and there's a good chance you won't even need to see me, but you may still want to just check in so you're you're in our system and we can maybe do a follow-up once per year. And then if the book doesn't fully help you, by the time you've worked through some of the protocol, your appointment will be just around the corner. Perfect. Awesome. I appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, Thanks no, for sitting thank down. You. It's been and, fun. Um, yeah, we'll get you we'll get you back on soon if you're local. Because you're gonna, that six to eight month thing, I was like, ah oh, shit. I wonder <laughs> if I could pull a favor because I know him now. But no, I appreciate it, man. Yeah, Thanks. happy to do it.